And good morning and welcome to this week's episode of The Lowdown with uh, with the doctors. We have a few doctors with us here in the studios this morning to talk about some of the medical and health issues related to um, to COVID-19. And um, I got a lot of I got a lot of things to, to talk about um, uh, uh, cardiac involvement, um, coronavirus in kids and young people, evolutionary genetics. Um, so I hope you're prepared um, <laughs> with me in the studio is Dr. Curtin Mortis, Curtis Mortensen from KCHC and Dr. Evan Jones from Canna. Welcome, doctors. Thanks. Thank thanks you. for having us. Um, all right, so well, let's let's get started with um, some of the numbers from um, yesterday. We had um, another uh, another big day statewide, and we have another um, active case, which I believe is was travel related, mm-hmm. not not community spread. Um, but we um, even though our positivity rate is less than five percent, which the CDC says is good, right? That puts us in green still, but the um, but the transmission rate is 1.25, which is of concern because it's the highest in the nation. Do you know how, how that works? How do they, do you have any idea how they calculate that? How do we know that? I believe, I'm not sure exactly which statistic you're looking at, but I think what you're saying is out of the tests that are being run, mm-hmm. uh, 1.25% are positive is that is that correct is well that no the... it, they're saying it's the it's the transmission rate oh so you're talking about the r the basically we, the, talk, we talk about this r it's r, rt or, yeah okay. so like the we talk about an r not is r being not. a transmission rate of one okay so that's when you get like if 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 everybody if anybody gets covid19 or any disease i should say and you transmit it to one other person that is called an r not value and if you're at that level then you're not going to get these big ballooning statistics of of increased cases right because no one's everybody's giving it somebody is just giving it to one other person versus if you start getting up in that value to um greater than one then that means you're going to get this kind of exponential growth in cases um and so i'm surprised that that would be the highest in the nation though i i guess i'm not aware of that I'm a little surprised too, and I think it's a little bit of under-testing in a lot of areas. When we go back and do antibody tests in New York City, we find that about a 23% of the population has antibodies to this uh, to coronavirus, mm-hmm. COVID-19. And so I would guess that a lot of it has to do with fairly extensive um, testing also. Um, when, when we look at it early on, we were thinking that this... Uh, um, you may be giving it to in China. They're looking at numbers of 2.5. That for every person who, who gets it, about 2.5 other people will get it, and you, then you have this exponential growth. So, to be honest, I, I look at that number and say, "Yep, it's it's higher than it should be, but it's not horrible, mm. and it's probably mostly Anchorage because it's a, a lot more concentration in that area." Mm-hmm. Right. They are yes, they are a hot spot, and the CDC yesterday. Um, has also labeled uh, Fairbanks and Matsu as hotspots in um, in Alaska right now, um, uh, 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 re- recommending mask mandates and and and, and I think the Kenai um, also. Um, so one of the big uh, uh, topics um, that I've seen, um, I was just talking to Curtis how I'm like I'm, I'm on Twitter and I love Twitter and so I follow a lot of people on Twitter. And there's something that's trending right now called hashtag long COVID. 
I don't know if you've heard the hashtag, but basically the explanation or the thing is, is that it's uh, 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 the, the, the long-term effects of being infected with, um, with the virus. We, I talked with, um, and I'll have a story about this out today with um, um, a former student um, who went to the high school here, who went to college off in England, um, and during the uh, when London was a, was a hot spot, and um, he played lacrosse, and he lived with his lacrosse teammates and rowing teammates. So these were like you know fit fit people, uh, men and women, and um, he said a couple of them are still even though um, they are no longer test positive they're still suffering from the lingering effects, fatigue, coughing, um, headaches. So I guess my, my big question before we kind of get into the specifics of this is how do doctors define the word recovered? Mm-hmm. So it is a little bit different um, <laughs> because we look at recovered as being free of the virus, really. Um, and when you're looking at a patient, you know, some, some patients, when they're free of the virus, require a walker uh, because they become so winded uh, just walking down a hallway where before, before they were pretty good. Um, when we're looking at statistics, I should say, I'm not sure a physician would consider that recovered. Uh, but when we're looking at statistics, we would consider that person recovered despite not being where they were before the disease. And so it, it is a little bit of a difference between what the patient may want and what statistics may want. As a physician, uh, we, we st- still don't know the long ga- game on this. We still don't know what the long-term ramifications. People have needed lung transplants from this. Uh, people have had serious cardiac issues after this. Um, th- there have been some long-term implications despite, quote-unquote, recovering from this. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that um, you know, I was talking to somebody this past week, um, because most of the emphasis thus far, and most of my education on this disease has been more about how to identify it, how to control it, um, like how to control spread. Um, but, and I think that now the evidence is shifting now that we know that COVID is going to be with us for a little while here, um, you know, that now it's going to be more of a, well, and I should say a lot of the initial information was how to treat those exceptionally ill patients, like the ICU level patients, like what is the best thing to do for these patients to keep them alive? Well, we know that every disease is a spectrum and, and COVID's no different. You have some people that have no symptoms or very minimal symptoms. And then you have some people that are critically ill, but then you have this group that do get ill and maybe don't even require hospitalization, but do do get ill, and then they have these more chronic, uh, uh, you know, symptoms related to it. And I agree with Evan. I think we're like right at the cusp of learning more about this. Um, and even in talking to providers that are dealing with, uh, you know, issues like the fatigue and things like that, there's like all these kind of like, well, do you give steroids? Do you give these different treatments? And I don't think there is a consensus on how to best treat those symptoms necessarily. Um, And so I I think that there's going to be a lot of research coming out about that. But I would be lying if I said that I knew the exact answer to that. Mm -hmm. I think it'll be probably years before we get a good answer uh, (laughs) what the the appropriate treatment is for some of these sequelae from the disease. Uh, So let me read you. This is um, a short little Twitter feed from um, a doctor in her uh, late 20s, early 30s. 
And so I'm going to read you what she's describing that she's having, and then we'll talk about what you, uh, um, how would how would you treat her, or you know what what are some of the things that you would be thinking about. So, she writes that she just crossed the four month mark of being sick with COVID nineteen. She's young, um, she's healthy. Um, dying is not the only thing to worry about. She still has a near daily fever, loss of cognitive function, essential tremors. Uh, GI, which I assume is gastrointestinal issues, severe headaches, heart rate of over 150, viral arthritis, heart palpitations, muscle aches, a feeling like my body has forgotten to breathe. Over the past 124 days, I've lost all feeling in my arms and hands, had extreme back kidney rib pain, phantom smells like someone barbecuing bad meat, tinnitus, uh, difficulty understanding text and reading, Difficulty following conversations, sensitivity to noise and light, nonstop bruising. Even thinking can cause headaches. And and she is using the, the hashtag long COVID. Um, no one knows when long COVID patients aren't contagious. Many are alone per month. So there's some mental health things. So these symptoms sound pretty bizarre to me, but I'm just a lay person. Well, and... Uh... You know, we talked about this a few weeks ago, how I think COVID is a little different than what we think of. We, th- we think of like, okay, the flu virus, which mm-hmm. um, primarily is affects the lungs, like primarily is a respiratory illness. Um, whereas COVID is, is primarily like it, it enters through some like maybe a respiratory tract, but it, it actually is a blood illness. It sticks to the insides of kind of your, your bloodstream. So it, it can go kind of everywhere all organ systems seem to be affected by it and not consistently so it seems to be very variable depending on the patient and 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 those type of things and so man i just feel incredible empathy for a patient that has i mean this is you know obviously a high functioning person used to being able to do lots of great things Mm -hmm. and 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 then having this uh infection take away um, all these things that she enjoys to do. And the, the short answer is we don't know exactly how to treat that. Um, and that's, that's the frustrating part for us. We wish there was, you know, that magic thing. And, um, but I think not that I don't want to sound like a broken record, but not to bring this back to, this is why we need to prevent this. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Like, right. you know, this is, this is why the prevention <laughs> is key. Uh, because, uh, if we don't, then there's going to be, um, we do not know the long-term manifestations of this. And, um, this could be maybe really rare, hopefully, <laughs> but it could be that it's more common than we think. And w- the long-term ramifications of this on someone, uh, we just don't know. And so we got to work on preventing it. It's really hard to predict, too. It's, it's very hard to predict who's going to react in what way. Uh, in a case like this, I mean, w- even though there's a lot of information there, there's still not enough information to really make it, uh, an idea of what you'd want to do. Is mm-hmm. she actively infected still? Um, did she have something before this disease even started that prevents her from clearing this disease that, mm-hmm. that we need to address? Has the disease been cleared and we've moved into kind of an autoimmune phase and we start need to start using immune modulators? We don't know all this stuff. I mean, we're, we're trying to figure it out as we go along. I know people have gotten frustrated and uh, have said, well, these guys don't know what they're talking about. Because it changes every few months. Yep, Mm -hmm. you are correct. It is changing every few months. It's amazing how much information has been gathered on this disease so quickly, Mm -hmm. though. Um, 
I, I am blown away by the, the level of understanding we've gained basically over nine months uh, since we first started hearing word of this, how much information we've gained on this and the potential for having a, a vaccine. I, even if we, the, the fastest vaccine up till now, I was, it was been a while, it's been four years. Wh oh my goodness. Uh, that wow. was the, before this <laughs> one, that was the fastest vaccine ever. And now we're looking at a little over a year before probably we'll have a commercially available uh, vaccine for a disease. To me, that's stunningly good. Um, and so I, I, I actually, it, it's sad to see these cases, uh, but it's amazing how well the medical community internationally has done. Hmm. Um, I've seen this symptom um, come up in a couple other descriptions, especially for young people and some of the effects is viral arthritis. I've never heard of, I've heard of arthritis, but mm -hmm. what is viral arthritis? Well, I mean, there's, there's, different types of viruses or bacteria can cause arth arthritis and and i think that the cause of why why covid causes this causes this we don't we don't really know like like uh even said um you know is this an autoimmune sometimes people after having a um you know a viral uh or any sort of infection sometimes your body can your immune system get amped up and can attack itself and so is that part of it or is it the actual infection itself i think we're um we're not sure. <laughs> yeah. and, and I would say, being very honest, if I were to throw my hat in the ring, I'd, I'd be doubtful that it's the virus itself causing this. I think it's more likely uh, an issue with the immune response to Post-viral. Yeah, kind of a post-viral syndrome that uh, we see frequently. I mean, when you have the flu and your joints are achy, it doesn't mean the flu virus attacked your joints it does mean that you had a serious immune response hmm. and now you're kind of achy all over okay. and so uh whether there's direct attack on cartilage and, and bones I, I i think it's unlikely but we don't know yeah yeah i mean it's 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 hard i think to uh be in a position like um worse to be in her position uh <laughs> but like in our position I, I think we we feel like um so you know as someone who's only taken care of uh really only taking care of one patient that had covid you know we've only been 17 in town mm -hmm. we're not going to be the authorities by any stretch on how to how to take care of covid patients we're, i mean we're going to work hard we're probably if we had a patient like this i'd probably be on the phone with a lot of specialists trying sure. to figure out like okay what's new in the cardiology field mm. what's new in the orthopedic field like actually talking to these specialists so i, I don't want to dissuade mm -hmm. people from coming in if they have had covid and they're having persistent symptoms mm -hmm. but I, I think that knowing that the knowledge base both um i think the knowledge base internationally is not such that necessarily we're going to have a great answer but we will work on getting that answer. You know, we'll, we'll work on looking, talking to people and trying to figure out um, what needs to happen. But we certainly aren't, I wouldn't consider myself an expert on treating COVID, certainly at this point. <laughs> so well, the, biggest, the biggest thing they teach you in med school is how to learn. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that you can't possibly learn all the information needed for being a doctor. Mm -hmm. There's many times I see on my schedule a person coming in with the disease I have never treated before, and I vaguely recall it from med school. But guess what, man? I, I know the resources to go to, and I start jamming in information before they come in. And you suddenly make yourself an expert, and you know the good resources to go to and which ones are somewhat quackery, and you're able to sort it out quickly. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's one of the biggest keys to, to treating anything like this that's unusual. 
So, so how is it for for doctors right now? Because for the public, we are obsessed with COVID, especially even in Kodiak. Still, you know, we're this is really this is you know number one on anxiety list or whatever it is right now. Um, but as you mentioned, Curtis, you've only if you've only treated one, you know, uh, uh, COVID patient. Um, how much of even your day is uh, is is taken up with? As even said, learning or um, talking to other talking to other doctors about um, about this. How much? How much are is it really you know taking taken over your medical professional lives? So it hasn't taken over my medical professional life, but it is something I spend a little bit of time every day on. Um, I am constantly reading the newest scientific journals that come out online. It's easy to track them down that way and trying to figure out what is the latest evidence for the latest treatments to figure out is there a better way of approaching this. Um, we, we have the luxury of uh, Curtis and I get to be prepared for if there are a lot of cases here, where a lot of places they had no idea what was going on when it hit them hard. And we, we definitely have an advantage up here. And we feel a little bit more comfortable uh, because we've had a lot of time to read scientific articles on this and figuring out what's a good treatment for it. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think a lot of my providers would say that there's there's this a heightened level of anxiety because that we just don't you know you, you just don't want to do the wrong thing and expose mm -hmm. people and I think when it comes to um, I, I heard a um, uh, there was a, a podcast I listened to that the the epidemiologist said unfortunately there's no 100% safe way to do anything. But the fact is there was no 100% safe way to do anything at any time. We just kind of have a false sense of security, but now there's this right. big <laughs> elephant in the room. And so, you know, we have, I have my fellow providers come to me and kind of asking about like, well, does this patient, you know, is it safe to see this patient in clinic, you know, with these symptoms, even if they have a negative mm. COVID test, because we know there could be false, you know, false, uh, you know, negatives. And so there's a lot of worry about like making sure we're doing the right thing. And, um, and I, I think that, you know, we're learning more and more um, uh, every day. But yeah, it, it is it is somewhat, I would say back in the fall, in the spring, sorry, it was pretty much all consuming, trying to figure out like what we're going to do, how we're going to change our clinic workflows, setting up a testing tent, like there was just a lot of logistical things. Now we're kind of on a, there's, we're kind of I feel like in our clinic, at least, we've kind of adjusted to this new normal, but we're just kind of waiting for the next thing. It seems like every week or two, there's a new thing that kind of comes out that yeah. we're a major change, you know. Um, right now, it's kind of the whole school thing, right? Like school's starting, and so, or you know, they're attempting to start school, so there's a lot of things around that that are, are you know, big and, and moving targets. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big deal in the medical world. We're, we're all, you know, living in change. We're all wearing these masks every day. We're all you know, kind of when people come in with flu-like symptoms, when they call in, we're making sure they get tested before they come in. They can't mm -hmm. just come in the clinic like they mm -hmm. used to. And so there's definitely been some big changes, uh, you know, in how we operate because of it. Um, yeah, speaking of, of schools, and um, I talked with, uh, um, you know, Deborah about um, about sports and um, uh, uh, trying to um, get things back. Um for, for kids. So uh, this week, Johns Hopkins came out with this, um, like, coronavirus and curriculum for schools. And it's, um, and, and it's really qu quite interesting. It's not just about, um, like, 
uh, you know, healthy, positive behaviors and habits and things like that related to it, but it's uh, curriculum related to like getting into the physics of face masks, um, uh, mathematical models of how pandemics spread, um, uh, even like the chemistry, you know, behind hand washing and, um, and sanitizer. Um, and it's really interesting to see how this idea of health has kind of taken on this multidisciplinary a uh, um, monster, you know, it's not just um, going to the doctor and, and getting treatment and getting a pill and or whatever it is, or, um, or the doctor reminding you to get some exercise every day, you know, this is physics and math and, and, and chemistry. Yeah. I, I don't know, it's just, it's, it seems, um, so if, if we were to put some kind of curriculum, what would you like to see? Or um, what do you think about that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I know that um, you know, as a, as a father, like we're, you know, you're being asked questions all the time, like, cause kids notice that there's something different going on. My kids are younger. So they, they, but they notice that there's something, you know, happening in, in our society that's different than normal. And, uh, you know, so I think that certainly using those opportunities, the time we're in as opportunities to teach and to learn and to, uh, you know, I think that, the best way to educate is, you know, to make it real, to make it real life. And I think that this is something that if we're not taking advantage of, of this time to teach mm. about health and, and wellness and, and the science of it and the maybe the social emotional aspects of it and all these different things and how that fits together, I think that that's a great opportunity. Yeah, I think we get a little one-dimensional in our thinking yeah. uh, when we, we think of, well, we got to beat this disease. Well, it, it is multifaceted. There's a lot to it when you say shut down the schools. I mean, yep, it's going to prevent a lot of the disease spread. Um, but at the same time, this might be a kid's only safe place. This might be a, you know, a, a kid's refuge. It might be a place where the, a kid gets a meal. And we as physicians sometimes don't think about those other aspects. And then there's just the social-emotional thing. What does it mean to learn staring at a computer screen, screen as compared to learning while being among your friends and and get learning to get along with others, which is a huge part of school, is learning how to interact with the people around you. And so it, it is, it's, it's fascinating to me to look at, uh, when, when we speak to some of the educators, to, to look at the facets that I, I didn't even really consider until we, it was brought up to me, because I get so focused on one thing. Mm -hmm. And so I, I find it a fascinating topic right now. I've been in, intrigued by this. Frankly, it's, a, it's an awful wor word to say, but <laughs> I've been intrigued by this from the beginning, trying to figure out how are we going to beat this. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. Um, all right. How about uh, how do you feel about getting into some evolutionary um, genetics? There is a uh, uh, and it and its usefulness. I'll say um, they uh, scientists have identified that uh, the the origins of SARS. COVID-2 in um, horseshoe bats in China, and they think they found the um, the origins of the strand back in, uh, all the way back in 1969 is where they've kind of identified where. So it's been around for decades, um, which is very interesting information and probably useful, but um, how useful information really is this? Um, does this help you or anybody really prepare for a second virus or, you know, an, an evolved strain of, of the virus. 
all of these things change because of pressure. And so hmm. when we develop an antibiotic uh, for a bacteria, we put pressure on it in a certain way and find its weak link. And, and it either dies off completely or it adapts, it changes. And same is true with some of these viruses. Sometimes they're random mutations and they just happen to, to work at the right time. And now when they're, humans are exposed, uh, suddenly and humans can be infected. You know, this is an unusual disease because we have seen uh, multiple animals infected with COVID-19. I mean, people think that, you know, oh, don't let your dog lick you, it'll spread disease to you. <laughs> yeah, there are a few. Um, but uh, different animals spreading to each other is actually pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very rare phenomena um, to the point where even like the uh, when I was a kid and there was a, a dead bird or something, people were like, oh, be careful. You might get lice from that bird. Uh, it's so right. <laughs> pre- precise that lice in a bird does not work on lice in a human. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very species specific. And um, how is it going to help? I mean... How are we changing the pressure on some of these viruses? How are we altering that? Or is this something that was going to happen anyway? Are there things we're doing to affect the way these virus and bacteria adapt? And are we making disease worse through some of our actions? Right, yeah. And I don't know. I, I don't know with this one. This one may have just happened. Um, the, the If you've been to the markets in China, um, it, it's... People want to know that the, the meat is fresh, so you have a million live animals in the markets there. Mm. I, I was last there in 99. Maybe things have changed. Um, but you, you go through the markets, and it's like going through a zoo because there's so many different live animals there mm. potentially spreading disease. Um, that's certainly a way that it gets transmitted to humans. It's, it's an artificial way it's spread to humans. So uh, it's worth looking at how useful it is this time. I don't know. It's interesting. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, certainly doesn't have a whole lot of impact on my day-to-day. Um, it's it's more of a, a, you know, intellectual, you know, fascination and, and getting to the bottom of where it came from, I think, is, is, is interesting information. But certainly doesn't affect my, like, day-to-day practice and, and how I think <laughs> right. we, should, we should do. But historically— You should, you should avoid bats. Yeah, yeah, avoid. yeah, yeah. <laughs> historically, you know, that's—you know, we had the swine flu a few years back. And mm-hmm. historically, this is not an uncommon way— is that a virus that's been previously passed along in different animals then transmits, finds a way to be able to live in humans. And, and that's not an uncommon way to get some of these bad uh, flu, flu or viral outbreaks. So, um, the, um, uh, uh, Let's see. Oh, I read. So um, let's talk about some of the um, cardiovascular um, elements that we know so far um uh uh this from i'm trying to find it. it's the uh, uh it's from uh jama um jama cardiology um so they um surveyed um uh or not surveyed they, they tested um 100 adult patients um after they had they were a confirmed case of COVID 19 but after two weeks, they passed a swab test. And so they took 100 of them in um, along with a, you know, with a control group. And they found that 78 patients had 
abnormal imaging findings. Um, 73 of those 78 patients had what is called raised myocardial native T1. Oof. You should have gotten the cardiologist. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> uh, but but even if we even if I don't know what what that means, um, but cardiac involvement, myocardial infarction. Um, uh, it, can you explain what those are? And uh, well, without looking at the study, what I venture to say is that the T one is something we would call refer to as a troponin. Um, if it, if it's a marker of 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 heart. Um, damage essentially okay and so if that is indeed what it is and i have not okay. read the study so I, I can't tell you that for sure but that would like make, that would make sense that kind of that I, would track yeah. yeah and so this is a enzyme that is released by the cardiac muscle when there's been damage done to it so it's a it's we use it the if uh troponins we use them frequently in the hospital patient comes in with chest pain we do a troponin. If it's elevated, that shows us there's been damage done to that heart muscle. We mm. need to get them to a cardiologist to have mm. further evaluation. Um, so, um, again, I kind of come back to um, this whole idea that, that this virus sort of sticks on the inside of blood vessels. And it seems to cause uh, a preponderance. Part of that is that it can go to any organ, but it can also cause blood clots. It seems to have a preponderance for causing the blood to clot. And so... If you have you have your small blood vessels that are in your heart that that perfuse your heart that give your heart the oxygen it needs, if you get this coronavirus if it gets into the blood vessels in in the heart and it causes a blood clot, then that can certainly cause damage to the heart muscle, which could cause elevated levels like this is uh, saying, um, you know. And and so I know that one of the things that we're finding is that this can cause poor heart function so the heart doesn't squeeze as well as it did and and, oh, okay. and then okay. uh so it can cause damage to the heart muscle that then leads to uh poor heart function and then if you're doing that in someone who's already sick if somebody's already sick and their heart is mm. stressed and then you say well your heart can't work as well because of the viruses then mm. that then you can that can just lead to kind of the snowballing effect that can make you know it, it challenging yeah. um and then the question is here is this is post this is after yeah and so Again, kind of coming back to our first conversation with this gal that, that, that you were talking about, you know, it's really unclear. Are these going to be reversible changes? Are these mm. changes that we're going to find in the heart that are going to go back to normal? Or are they going to stay? And at this point, we don't know um, that for sure, I don't think. And this is kind of hand in hand with the same disease we've been seeing with kids. We, you've heard about COVID feet, especially in children. Right. And so the reason it's probably affecting children is because things in children if you haven't noticed they're small and the airways are smaller the blood vessels are smaller smaller and when you get out to the distal parts of the body if you have a tiny little clot it can affect a larger portion of the body than it would necessarily an adult so you don't see these co quote unquote covid feet in adults as much as you do a kid because in a kid a small blood vessel being blocked can can visibly make uh, marks on the feet in places where blood simply was not getting to the to the hmm. uh, toes and such, and you get some bruising and clotting in the distal parts of the toes, and this is the same thing he's talking about that it's a, a hypercoagulability that seems to be associated with COVID, hmm. um, and it's a it's a bit of a mystery because we're we're not even sure you know typically with patients who have these hypercoagulable states. 
uh, we would think, well, should we put them on a blood thinner of some sort? And it's, it, even that is not entirely clear to us at this point. It may hmm. actually worsen things in some cases. Um, we're still still learning about even this small aspect of this disease. Um, there's a little evidence that it may actually attack the, the muscle of the heart itself, too. And so beyond just clotting and depriving the muscle of oxygen, there's some evidence that it may be directly attacking the muscle itself and in some cases. Hmm. And we'll, we'll have to sort through all that also. Hmm. Let me say, so hypercoagulable means the body easily, more easily clots. And so just want to make sure I, we... Coagulable. Yeah, if there's terms <laughs> that we use, please call us out because I, I tend to use medical terminology and, and certainly let me know. <laughs> coagulable that's that's what i'm going to give to my actors to work on their yeah. enunciation i love that one <laughs> say that five times <laughs> right <laughs> um so um uh, uh if you're just joining us we're here i'm um, talking to some doctors if you have a question um give us a call for 863181 or shoot us an email at lowdown at kmxt um dot org so I've been been bombarding you with a lot of uh, with a lot of questions. Um, is there really anything that you uh, 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 is at the top of your list that you want to uh, talk about, tell people about, or even ask each other? I guess. But um... the big thing to me is I'm curious uh, a lot what what parents think. I, I'm because I, I have my mindset. And I have some friends who think it's a bit of a hoax and it's overblown. And I have some friends that I haven't seen for the past six months <laughs> so, um, because they've remained hunkered down the whole time. Um, I'm always curious to know where people are at and, and why they think that way. Um, even with this opening of the school, um, one of my friends is considering homeschooling at this point. And, and it's interesting to talk to her. It's not because she's worried about her kids getting the disease or bringing it home or anything like that. She wants to leave room for kids who don't have a parent who can homeschool. And that was her thinking behind it. Oh, interesting. I don't think I've ever really heard that, that mm -hmm. reasoning before. Yeah, and she's like, it's huh. something that I think will be a great year for with our family. And it'll be that fun year when the family got to stay home. And it, <laughs> it opens up a spot in school for kids who might not have the parents with the ability to do that. I like hearing from parents. I'm curious what they think and why they think along those lines. Yeah. I mean, and I think just in talking to community members, like it's, it's, it is interesting because you get like my perception of it is without taking a survey is that about a third of, about a third of people are like totally like, no, I'm never going to send my kids to school mm -hmm. because of, you know, the risk of infection. They're kind of more the ones that you talked about. They're hunkering down and, you know, we haven't seen in a long time about, you know, a, a fraction of people are kind of like, we, we got to go, like, you know, don't, you know, are more not, not really worried about that. And then I think about uh, there's a fraction of people that are kind of in the middle, like trying to figure it out. And I just think that it, it is a time to, um, we really need to provide each other grace in mm -hmm. this situation. Um, everybody responds differently to this. Everybody's in different circumstances. And I think that there are some things that obviously we talk about frequently that I, I think are good things to prevent infection and, and, and allow us to be a safer community, uh, in the midst of this. But, um, you know, it's, it's a tough time. And I think that, that we do need to provide each other grace. We need to have open, uh, non-judgmental dialogue 
And, um, you know, I also think that there's, um, again, kind of coming back to the schools and, and things like that is there's people that are really working hard to try and make this be as, as, as good of a year as it can be. But I, I think that we need to guard ourselves against this idea that this is going to be like a normal year mm-hmm. and, right. and kind of say, you know what, this is, this is going to kind of be an experimental, this is a COVID year. And we need to be okay with the fact that it's going to be different than it, than a normal year. And, um, and I think when you take that pressure off, I think that sometimes it makes you, leaves you more open to what those changes might be. Um, anyways. And going along with what you're mm-hmm. saying about giving grace, uh, being respectful for one, to one another. Um, and now, now Safeway and Walmart, I think are both requiring masks in the store. If you see somebody with a mask, just know it's the store's job to police that you don't need to be confronting your neighbors and, and becoming part of a viral video. Um, it's, it's your job to, to look out for, for your home and, and your kids and other things, because there's a lot of people, I, I, I know I, I had a friend uh, confront one of my very own patients who parked in a uh, handicap parking and he, he had horrible congestive ha- heart failure, but he looks totally fine. He can walk. He can do all those things. But if you're to follow him for more than 50 feet, you'd realize, oh, he's worn out. He's done. Mm-hmm. But she kind of said, you shouldn't be parking here. This is for people with disabilities. And we, we don't know the people walking around without a mask on. It's not our job to do that when we're in Safeway or Walmart, just like I'm not going to police people when I'm a guest in your home. Uh, don't become part of the problem. Uh, try to be encouraging to others. Um, help people out as we're going along. Um, I, I, I look at how angry people get when they're told to put on a mask. Don't be ridiculous either. If you're going into somebody else's store and the requirement is to wear a mask, put your mask on. Um, it, it's, it's, you're a guest in their place, and you need to be treat, treat, treat that with respect, too. It's a rule they've made. If you don't want to shop there, don't shop there. All right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> all right. Back back to Mike. That was great. <laughs> that was great. I think we will probably just take clips of what you said, and we'll, we'll put uh, some kind of PSA <laughs> together. <laughs> just, uh, just, just don't be rude. Um, so, um, and this is, again, I, I think I already know the answer to this question, which is we don't know yet. But um, my cousin just gave birth um, a couple of months ago. Do we have any idea what, um, how, uh, uh, is, is there a heightened risk to, uh, to pregnant women? So I'll give you my two cents articles I've read on it. I think early on we were very concerned because this kind of looks like the flu, and the flu can be rough on pregnant women. Hmm. Uh, if you've been pregnant recently, you go to the doctor's office and at some point we're going to say, Hey, you should probably get a flu shot. And people are like, Oh, I don't want immunizations while I'm pregnant. Um, uh, the reason we recommend those is because a mom with the flu has a far higher chance of dying than a non-pregnant woman with everything else equal, uh, getting the flu. Um, early on, we took the stance that man, be careful if you're pregnant around uh, COVID-19. And now we're not seeing the data match up with that quite as well, but I'm still concerned. Um, And I'd still be careful with everything when you're pregnant, but the data doesn't seem to match up very well that it's a huge detriment to be pregnant while having coronavirus. We've all seen the stories on, on the news where 
a pregnant was woman slipped into a coma and eventually delivered a baby and she died and yep that's true it does happen it does with a million other things too it makes for a very sensationalistic story um but as far as the data I, i'm not sure that it's detrimental to be pregnant with this disease at this point yeah yeah and i'd, I'd agree like um we there's always a heightened awareness to protect our kids and our mm-hmm. pregnant women go with in, in that in, in that there's always a heightened sense of protection of of those patients um and in general those patients tend to be more susceptible to some of these di- like diseases like the flu in in the past but i would agree that so far it doesn't appear that this seems to disproportionately affect our pregnant women or our kids in fact with the kids less so even um but that's not a reason to be all cavalier because it does affect some and so i I think that uh, but just in general um the answer at this point i think is that it's not it's not super high risk if you're pregnant Mm -hmm. that's not one of the risk factors that we see as being um more likely to develop severe disease And um, another question that has come up is um, have uh, again again it's probably we don't have enough data yet but um, uh, with with people who are um, missing organs like spleens or a kidney or uh, have recently had a gallbladder uh, removal someone in my family recently had mm-hmm. some um, something going on with their with their gallbladder um, but it really didn't seem to be much of a, a concern is. Have you have you read or seen anything on? Um... Yeah, I mean, I think that any um, so when we do we do know about certain things that are risk factors. So uh, diabetes, you know, mm. age, greater age, um, uh, obesity actually is a risk factor that has been shown to have significant ramifications on people getting more sick. I think we think of like transplant recipients and things like that. Like mm-hmm. I don't know that yeah. there's data on that, but man it just seems like uh you obviously if you have a transplant patient that's on a bunch of medications that suppress their immune system exactly it just yeah. makes common sense that you're you know that person's going to be more vulnerable um i'm not sure if we have studies that actually bear so, that out but so there was a study it's it's once again if you look at it's two months old so it's ancient <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but it had a mortality rate of approaching 50 percent with tra- heart transplant patients oh yeah okay. um and so very very deadly among transplant patients these were suppressing immune system and on top of that People with cor- poor cardiac function don't do with this well with this disease, even with, with their own heart. Yeah. And so there's multiple r- elevated risk factors. As far as the spleen, you know, we, we, we kind of think of some organize, organisms that do better when you don't have a spleen. Gallbladder, I wouldn't even think much about it. Mm, yeah. um, kidney function is an issue, though. If you yeah. have poor kidney function, you do tend to have worse a- outcomes. But is that because you have multiple other things going on, such as hypertension and diabetes, that gave you poor kidney function? I don't know the answer to that. Mm, yeah. Well, and I think that the other, um, I think the encouragement that I oftentimes give my patients is just like always, trying to be as healthy as you can be is only going to help you. So quitting smoking is probably going to be a good thing to do. Uh, being in good cardiovascular fitness is going to be a good thing. That's going to help you potentially, if you were to get infected, be able to survive mm-hmm. this. Not, and I kind of used like, I've, I've been trying to talk to you about this for five years now, right, but exactly. maybe this is the thing to get you to do it. But like, you know, I think that, that being healthy is going to help someone battle this disease better. And that doesn't mean it's 
like we do see younger, healthier people get this disease really bad and even mm-hmm. die from it. But, you know, your odds are improved if you're taking care of yourself. And there was a study that came out very recently that shows that even mild obesity, meaning a BMI from 30 to 35, which a lot of us, including me, fall into that range, uh, is has a very negative out, outcome with this. And so thinking about you've been considering taking off those extra pounds and waiting for summer to get there here to get do that well it's here and might be (laughs) a good time to do it um and and not only making that change but making the permanent change in your life the permanent change is to keep you at a healthier level um the uh it was not just the cdc it was another it was another journal one in five this is this is the cdc one in five previously healthy young adults weren't back to usual health 14 to 21 days after testing positive. And um, another uh, study I, I cited in this story that I'm putting together about this, uh, about this runner is, um, you know, one, one third are experiencing, you know, these long-term effects and um, they're tying it back to the young adult um, definitely uh, uh um, use of vaping and, and smoking. And it's really more of the vaping in the United States, but in Europe, it's it's more of the it's smoking and, and, and vaping over there. Um, and so there, they, there might be, you know, a link um, between young adults and vaping, hmm. you know, what you're saying, you know, how that affects lung function um, is um, maybe one reason why some of these um, um, more young adults... But I don't know, um, and maybe you don't know either. You know, relatively speaking, if we're if we're thinking, you know, one third of young adults are having, are um, still aren't back to normal even fourteen days after having been officially recovered. How does that track with like um, young adults in the flu or other um, similar viruses? So is that that seems really high to me from like a standpoint are these patients that were hospitalized or are these patients like is it one in three that were hospitalized is it one in three that had severe symptoms or is it just one in three that were tested positive it was um um 35 who had tested positive and 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 then this is a telephone survey from the cdc uh 35 said they had not returned to their usual state of health two to three weeks after testing are getting that that ne- getting that negative test back? Yeah, I mean that seems pretty high to me for young adults that that they would still be because I mean so many people are asymptomatic or very mildly symptomatic. Right. But um, you know when when people have a bad flu bug, it is not uncommon for them to still have a cough, to still you know have some symptoms, fatigue or you know things like that a few weeks out. Like that is it's true that 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 can that can linger. Um, I don't know what the rates are if that's similar to that or not, but um, I mean I would say that that. Cer- probably a quarter of people that get the, a bad flu bug are still coughing a little bit at, t- at two weeks after the disease. So that post-viral sort of um, sort of suffering that takes place is not uncommon in, mm. in other viruses as well. Mm. But in general, that statistic seems a little high to me. But Well, it, it, I mean, it, it certainly does, yes. Um, I, I was kind of shocked. But these, again, were, you know, telephone interviews. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. Because if you if you had a cough, is that considered not back to normal? I mean, I, I suppose that that could be. Yeah, if seems a little high to me also, but um, it, it's hard to hard to say how people are going to react to this disease from person to person. I I just we we don't know. It does uh, 
bring up uh, another interesting study that came out recently. Going back to masks again, everybody's favorite topic. <laughs> Here we go. Um, so we've been talking a little bit about viral loads, which is how much virus is present in the body when you have the disease. Mm-hmm. Then we talk about viral dose. A viral dose is how much you receive uh, when you get an infection. Um, there's a study that came out about three days ago that, uh, yep, it, it showed that masks are fairly effective. But even those who did get sick had a lower viral dose given to them. And this is early on, but seemed to have lower amounts of symptoms and severity. We talked about that if you get a huge influx of virus all at once, your body's going to have a hard time fighting it off. And it may have a chance to disseminate to other organs in your system. If you get little micro doses of the virus, like if you're wearing a mask, but you still get a few virus into your body, your body may be able to build up an immunity to it with only small doses hmm. of it. And so this study seemed to be following along those lines that wearing a mask not only may prevent disease spread, but may prevent or may lessen the disease severity. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when you are in Safeway, Walmart, going to church, whatever those things are, wear your mask. All right. And um, I think we will um, I think we will end there unless you um, have any uh, other, you know, hot burning things that you really that you want to. Uh, we have time, but um, yeah. I, I don't think I have anything. Okay. I think that just the, the same things we to piggyback on what even just said, you know, trying to, uh, to to wear a mask, good hand hygiene, trying to keep your distance when you can. And, uh, you know, keeping your uh, still, you know, being aware of, of how many people you are being around. Mm -hmm. And I I always point to Elsa when she's here because she's the one, those public health nurses, if they find somebody that has COVID, they have to figure out all the people you saw. So if you can't tell someone, you know, the majority of people you saw in the past week, then that makes it really tough to, on them to trace back. And at the same time, what Curtis was saying earlier, get out there and get yourself a little healthier. Don't coop yourself up at home. Uh, there's plenty of pl- room to roam without a mask on um, where you can start hitting the trails and, and going for walks every day. Get your cardiovascular health up as high as possible. If you get the disease and you are cardiovascularly healthy, you're probably going to have a fine in- outcome and you're, you're probably going to handle this disease just fine. Uh, the heavier you are, the worse shape you're in. You're probably going to do a little bit poorer with it and it's going to take longer to get rid of this disease. And so take care of yourself, eat right, and uh, get out there and exercise on a beautiful day like today. Yeah, it's the it's the perfect day. It's the perfect day. Well, um, thank you to uh, my guests, Dr. Kurt, Curtis Mortensen and uh, Dr. Evan Jones for joining me uh, once again on um, The Lowdown. And we'll be back again um, next week. And I think um, um, Elsa should be back with us uh, next week to also talk about um, some of the public health elements, too. So, um Thanks again, Docs, and we'll we'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks.